It's week 36 of 2018, and this week on TechNATO, we've got a lot of Microsoft news to talk about, as well as some exploits and malware that are out there, and for some reason, a lot of stories from New Zealand. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Hello and welcome to TechNATO. I am your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined, as always, by a man who needs no introduction, but uh, I'll give him one anyway, because this could be the first time you're joining us here on TechNATO. Uh, so this is Don Pizzette. Don, how you doing? Thank you for filling in the gaps of my uh, memory loss. It's like memento, yeah. unless I tattoo my name on my arm, I don't remember. Yeah, hello, uh, you are Don Pizzette. <laughs> Good Just to know. Letting, letting you know. Uh, you know, in addition to my name, I also have a number of articles written down here, which are the tech news of the week that we're going to be going over, and we've got a lot of fun stuff on this one. Uh, kind of all over the place. Microsoft's been busy. Tons of Microsoft news this week. Yeah, well, let's just uh, not waste any time here, and let's just jump right to it then. So uh, our first article is over on CNET.com. Windows 10 October 2018 update is the name of Microsoft's next OS rollout. And wow, they've really outdone themselves with this one. You know, it's getting so confusing because now Microsoft is is basically moved to this rolling release cycle and said, instead of releasing all new versions of Windows or doing Windows 10 R2 or whatever, they're just going to start doing these every six-month releases. And they haven't really settled in on a good naming convention because you have where, where they're called Redstone while they're in development. And then there was the, the Fall Creators update and, and just all these different weird names. Now they've just given up. And the update that's coming out in October is called the October 2018 update. The one that follows in April will probably be called the April 2019 update. I'm just guessing, unless they come up with another naming convention. But uh, but anyhow, the update is coming out. Most of us have known this one was coming. I know we reported on some of the, the big features earlier on in the week. Uh, CNET does a good job of kind of summarizing the features. There's not really anything in here that I found earth-shattering, like, I've got to have that feature. But thanks to Microsoft's new rolling update system, you really do need to do the update because they're, they're getting a little more aggressive about dropping off support for systems that haven't been updated uh, with free updates. Some of the big things that uh, that you'll find in the update, the biggest one uh, we reported on probably a month or two ago about it using artificial intelligence to figure out when is best to reboot your machine for Windows updates. It uh, pays attention to how you use your machine in the hours that you're normally active and make sure that it applies the updates during a time when you're not normally using your computer. It's I thought the algorithm always did it during a presentation. Yeah, usually it's when uh, it, it has Cortana, turns on the microphone, and listens for the phrase, I'll be there in just a second. If it hears that, that's that's the cue to turn or, or on let's updates. start this hour-long yeah. demo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. Yeah, that, uh, that seems to happen too It's super often. frustrating. Well, I love the naming structure, too, I, but I was thinking, well, why don't they just use numbers? But didn't they skip over? They skipped over nine, right, when they went from Windows 8? to Windows 10. Yeah, do you know the reason why they did that? I don't. So uh, you know, a lot of people had conspiracy theories over they wanted to be in line with Apple because it was okay. OS 10 and all that, but the reality was uh, a lot of developers wrote these really simple checks to figure out what operating system you're running. And uh, Windows okay. 98 and earlier, 98, yeah. they had a different core than N Windows NT and, and newer. And so they would do a check. If the operating system started with Windows 9 something, Yeah then they knew it was the old core. And if it started with Windows 2 or XP or whatever, then they knew it was the new core. So they, they didn't want to do Windows 9 because it would break some software. Well, Apple kind of did the same thing. They went from the iPhone 8 to the iPhone 
X or 10. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say, what it's called. But Yeah, they never did do an iPhone do. 9, did no. they? They just skipped right past it. It went into a letter, but it's a Roman numeral, so I it's don't know supposed if we're to be supposed 10. to call it X or 10 or whatever. Yeah, the 10-year anniversary edition. But speaking of hardware, if we bring back up Don's screen here, we, we both got talking about oh, this. Oh, the ad uh, in the background. Uh, yeah, this, is it an ad or is it just supposed to be a picture of, of Windows? But it's, it's showing the uh, Lenovo uh, Yoga book. And we got saying, well, didn't we report on this, that there was going to be a, uh, a dual-screen laptop, essentially? And that's actually our next article here, because uh, there is some news on that. The uh, Let's see, this is over on sentinelnewslive.com. The first two-screen laptop, the Lenovo Yoga 930, uh, it's basically uh, uh, talking about when it's going to be re- released and what the cost is going to be, but... Unfortunately, it looks like this one is just Asia, Europe, and the Middle East right now. But sounds like maybe not a huge deal with with what it's running. Maybe we want to wait for a future one. Yeah. So this one, uh, it's coming out, uh, I think, already in the, the areas that you just mentioned. It's due here in the U.S. in November. So just a, a month or two later, you'll start to see this one popping out. Uh, if you didn't see our coverage of this laptop a few months ago... Basically, what makes it different is instead of a keyboard on the bottom part, it has a second screen, and it's an e-ink screen, which is very energy efficient, and it can display a keyboard like what we're seeing in this image here, where it's a a keyboard that you can touch type on, which I'll be the first person to tell you that touch typing totally sucks. So if that's what you're looking (laughs) for, like speed typing is not going to happen here. But you can also flip that mode to be able to do handwriting and note-taking and sketching and all that. Uh, and it folds to a tent, which I think they show a picture of in one of these articles, and uh, not this one. Yeah, we, we uh, were looking around on the Lenovo site before. So, you know, in theory, you could have a presentation running on one while you've got your notes on the other, various things like that. It's, it's a neat idea. I don't know how well it'll take off. It's probably a little on the gimmicky side, but it's I was surprised by how low the price was, and then it wasn't the start. I think it was the Anantech coverage where they actually talked about how uh, it has an Intel Atom processor in it, which is like really, really low end. Um, you know, designed to be energy efficient, but just not—it's not packing a lot of power, which puts this more in like Chromebook class than it does regular notebook class. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how how it takes off and how it's received. I, I thought it was interesting too in the in the photo you showed uh, with the actual keyboard. Um, they had the little marks on the F and J, which it's like, wh- why are we doing those? Because those are the tactile oh, yeah. things that stick up so you can find it on, on your uh, <laughs> your keyboard with your hands. So. I wonder if they just didn't know that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> look for the little, well, I guess you have to look down for the little lines as opposed to the F and J that you could just look. I mean, I, I wouldn't have known that if I didn't. I, I had to take a typing class oh, that, okay. when I was in middle school on, on typewriters, not yeah. on a uh, computer. Because God forbid we used a computer back then. Yeah. I think uh, I saw that on one of those ridiculous life hack articles that tells you all the things you already knew like hey there's an arrow that shows you which side of the car the gas gauge is on I'm like, yeah. yeah that's not a life hack that's <laughs> actually just a thing that's for that all right <laughs> enough ranting uh, let's move on to our next story uh this comes to us again right from the horse's mouth over on the skype blog uh, microsoft site uh, simplicity and familiarity updates to the skype user experience so what what uh, updates can we look forward to down all right so I would have written this headline a different way uh, if Microsoft uh, came to me for blog advice, which I don't know why they don't. But I would have written this as, hey, remember that update we pushed out last year that everybody hated? We're rolling it back. Uh, And that's effectively what's going on is a year ago, Microsoft rolled out a huge update to Skype, uh, pushing a whole new user interface experience. Uh, A lot of people accused it of being Skype becoming Instagram that it had the stories feature and you could do a lot of chatting and communication, try and create a feed for stories. And 
that's not what most people think of when they think of Skype, right? Um, yeah. Do you use Skype? Yeah, a little bit. And, and what do you use it for? Uh, for business calls, typically. So, so you actually use it as like a VoIP phone, yeah. right? Which mm -hmm. is what Skype was originally designed as. That was the, the original purpose of Skype. Uh, and then they introduced video conferencing. And so I, I probably use it for video conferencing more than VoIP, but I, I have that VoIP functionality there. Chat is like the last thing that I use Skype for. That I When I say, oh, I want to send a message to somebody, let me fire up Skype. <laughs> but that's not something I've ever said except for right there. So if you edit that audio, maybe you can reuse it. But uh, Microsoft was trying to change that. They were trying to make it a little more – I think they were trying to get it to appeal to a younger audience. But Skype, by and large, has become more of a business tool. And so um, – they rolled out the features. Microsoft always does an amazing job of tracking the, um, not demographics. What's the word when you track how people use a product? Adoption or the, uh, just the usage? Yeah. It has a, a weird, fancy, crazy word for how you spy on people. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> so they, they track what people are clicking on. And, and you know basically, they just found that people really didn't care about the stories feature. They are just, you know, it wasn't really being used. There was no adoption there. So they're rolling it back. Uh, they also announced that they're not killing off some of the older versions they had originally said. Uh, they had, uh, I believe they had announced that Skype, I believe it was version seven, they were killing off and that you had to go to version eight. Now they're extending the life of version seven and carrying that on. It's in the article here somewhere, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, just interesting to see that, that they are, basically acknowledging, look, sometimes we make an update and it's not what people want. We're trying to fix that. Yeah. And I, I just want to point out that the headline suggestion that you made is is why you're not very involved with the marketing team. Yeah. Um, here. <laughs> That's, that was a, a horrible headline suggestion. Uh, let's move on to our next article here, sticking with Microsoft, uh, as Don alluded to earlier, a lot coming from them this week. Uh, this one over on Engadget.com. Microsoft removes device install limits for Office 365 subscribers. So this is to say that if you have a, a phone and a laptop and a home computer and, and more devices, you used to be limited in, in how many you could sign on to with 365? Right. Yep. So uh, the way it used to work was that if you signed up for Office 365, you got five installs of Microsoft Office if you were paying to have local installs. Not everybody did. And with those installs... You could have up to five desktop clients, either Mac or PC. It didn't matter. You could mix and match. And two mobile operating systems, so Android, iOS, or uh, you know any of the various tablets. Um, you could have two of those, right? And if you wanted to go to another one, you had to remove it from one of the earlier devices to free up space for the next one. Well, five, that's a lot of installs. And for most people, that was more than they needed If you if you had a a work computer, a home computer, a tablet, and a cell phone, that's four devices. It still leaves you one more. But there were enough people that were butting up against that limit, and Microsoft found where it really didn't curb any kind of uh, piracy or anything like that, that they've removed the limit. You can now install Microsoft Office on as many machines as you want, but the gimmick is you can only be signed in to five devices at once. And what that means is that you can use Office as a viewer to, to view Word documents and view Excel spreadsheets and view PowerPoint presentations. But if you want to edit, you've got to sign in. Now, it's not that big of a deal to sign in. So you can install on as many machines as you want, and when you're ready to edit a document, you just click the little sign in button at the top. We, we do it with our email accounts every day. That's how Microsoft Office is becoming. So it's kind of neat to see them actually loosen up a restriction. Normally, companies do the exact opposite. Like, let's let's force some crazy phone-based activation or, or something of that nature and lock it down to a machine CPU ID. 
Well, not here. Now they're actually kind of loosening that up, and that'll certainly make it easier for deploying Microsoft Office. But if I'm sharing this across my extended family, uh, when I'm going to edit a document and sign in, my, my uncle might be signed out. You might boot somebody point. out, yep. Uh, right. Similar to, I, I know you use, I, I don't use it, but you use Adobe Creative Suite, right? Yeah. Same uh, thing there, uh, right? Where yeah, your account, I think. You, <laughs> that may well be. That's the, why you don't use it. You you get two logins, yeah, and uh, you can have two simultaneous logins. And if you log in on a third machine, it boots out whoever the first person was, and so you're just continually booting yourself out. That's kind of the model Microsoft's gone to. Yeah, if you use it infrequently enough, I guess that's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, well, we're gonna shift over now to uh, Adobe, and we've got some news on Adobe's blog, upcoming changes to Creative Cloud OS support. For Windows and Mac. So, speaking of Adobe, there are we are. Am I going to get booted off your account? Is that you what's know, happening? So I, I wish this was the, the same type of news. Like, oh, Adobe removes the limits, but they didn't. Uh, Adobe still has their two install limit, and if you install a third one, you boot somebody out. Um, also, they made a big announcement, and uh, this was at the end of last week, I believe. They made this announcement that hey, some new updates are coming out. They got some really cool stuff. They really want to optimize performance. But <laughs> they looked at a lot of the support tickets and issues where people were reporting poor performance. And in almost every scenario, they found people running old operating systems. They found people running Windows XP, Windows Vista. Uh, they found people running older versions of Mac OS and that people weren't updating to the newer versions. Now, normally Adobe wouldn't care about that. As long as their software runs, that's all they care about. But they're starting to take advantage of some of the new file system advancements and some of the new memory management advancements found in OS X as well as in Windows 10. And so they have announced that with the next update, with the next major release for Creative Cloud, they're going to reduce the amount of supported operating systems. They're no longer going to support Windows 8.1. So Windows Vista, Windows XP, Windows 8, Windows 8.1, all gone. On the Windows 10 side, it's got to be Windows 10, uh, the 15.11 build or newer. So you have to have that first update that came out. Uh, they won't support the, the gold version of Windows 10 that came out. You need to do your update. On the Mac OS side, you have to be running 10.11 El Capitan or newer. And uh, I know, Peter, you were very resistant to... Um, High Sierra, right? High Sierra. Yeah. You're on Sierra. So you, you're on Sierra, new enough. So El Capitan several versions back. So you, yeah. you should be fine there. Most people should be fine there. Um, you know, that's 10.11. We're on 10.13 now, right? Or, or no, 10.13, 14? I don't know. What am I on? <laughs> so, well, all I know is we have, we have a High Sierra article so, next, uh, so we'll figure this out. But uh, I'm on 10.13, yeah. So 10.11 is, is still is fairly recent, um, you know, like last five years or so for, for all of this stuff. So... Be aware that with the next major update of the Creative Suite, they're really going to crack down on that. Now, if you're a system admin, you're probably on newer versions of the OS already. Where you're going to have problems here are your end users. End users who have computers or workstations. You know, Maybe they've got some uh, Mac Pro desktop setup they built that uh, is running an older version. And they refuse to update because updates cause problems sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, now they're going to be forced. that Either they, they update or they're out of luck. Now... It used to be that you could say, well, you know what? I just won't update Adobe either. But with Creative Suite and the way that it's coming out of Creative Cloud, those updates get forced on you a lot of times, and it's very, very difficult to resist doing those updates uh, or to, to suspend them. You can do it. It's just not very easy. 
I'll tell you what, too. I've got you know a lot of these programs installed, but uh, it wasn't until you scrolled down in that article at the very bottom. It says the Adobe products featured in this article, and I realized I don't even know what half of those those are. It um, is, uh, yeah, it's like looking at the periodic table yeah, of elements, isn't like it? Like A-N and, and A-U took me a, a minute. Like and a chorizo? Is chorizo. That is? It's, yeah, um, it's a no, character animator. When you mouse over it, it, it gives you the URL uh, down in the corner. Uh, and yeah, there's... No, uh, I must be running an unsupported DN, operating system. I don't, know, I don't use DN dimension. Yeah, that's, that's the Don software. It's <laughs> mine. <laughs> Adobe Don. That's right. Yeah. It's amazing software. Well, we'll find out soon enough uh, if we'll be able to uh, get my computer over on High Sierra because that is our next article uh, from MacRumors.com. Uh, Apple releases macOS High Sierra 10.13.6, supplemental update for 2018 MacBook Pro models, which is what I have here. So is it worth it now? All did, right. So did, here did they fix the stuff with the where <laughs> I can actually put my, my dock and... and see things on another monitor ah, so no uh, okay. they have not fixed that so if you have a display link external display apple has flipped the middle finger at that one and is just not doing <laughs> not anything happen. to fix right. it uh, display link is putting pressure on them we'll, we'll see if that gets fixed still not fixed though in 10.13.6 the reason i pulled this article we actually mentioned the 10.13.6 update a couple of weeks ago on the show um, apple did something really unusual this week which is they released a supplemental update now if you're not familiar with that process Normally, when Apple releases an update, they increment the version number. So if we had 10.13.6, the next update would be 10.13.7. Well, when the 10.13.6 update went out, it worked fine for most people. It worked, worked fine for me, right? But if you had a 2018 MacBook Pro that had a touch bar, there was a bug in it that would cause some performance issues and occasionally cause a lockup. And so a lot of people were affected by this. Apple fixed it, they, they fixed the glitch, right? Uh, baked it into the update and released it with the exact same version number. So technically there's two different 10.13.6s. And that means, Peter, if you did your automatic updates two weeks ago, you might've updated to 10.13.6, but then not have this fix because this fix was released with the same number. Now, your Mac will know whether it has the fix or not, and the next time you do your updates, it will detect it and reinstall it. But if you have a 2018 MacBook Pro with a touch bar, it's a good idea to go ahead and launch your App Store app and let it check for updates. You might find that 10.13.6 is in the list again, even though you've already installed it. Hmm. Yeah, that'll be interesting. If Maybe cause some confusion for people who go and look and say, no, I've already got that, and, and move on. But uh, I guess if you're locking up, you you might do a little bit of research and, and find out. This is a pretty rare thing. Apple doesn't normally do it. They did it with Meltdown. Uh, they actually did it twice with Meltdown, where they released updates with the same version number, and it does make life really difficult. I wish they wouldn't do that. Um, I'm, there's probably some design aesthetic why they couldn't do 10.13.6.1. Johnny Ive would probably go crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just like adding an extra USB port, it would be insane. Yeah. But that's the world we live in. All right. Well, let's <laughs> stay on Mac rumors here. Uh, some more Apple news. Uh, security researcher shows how remote macOS exploit hoodwinks Safari users with custom URL schemes. Love the word hoodwinks. Yeah. That's, a, that's just a great term. That one. Yeah. That one is shenanigans. It, if, a... <laughs> if, if they changed uh, hacking, just, just you know, I, I was hoodwinked again. Yeah. Like it would just, it sounds a lot more fun. So are you a white hat or a black hat hoodwinker? Hoodwink, yeah. Is that... <laughs> I'm not sure. So, so what is this hoodwink all about? All right. So um, last week, a security researcher slash uh, Apple hacker, Patrick Wardell, uh, an announced how, and this is, has been sent to Apple, uh, so announced how there's a, a way to take advantage of a particular feature that Safari has. 
Safari has a feature where if you go to a website and you go to download an application and it's a zip file, when it downloads it, it actually extracts the file automatically. It tries to save you a little bit of time by extracting the file. And when that happens, it can register what's called a URL scheme that it, you ever go to a web page and you click on a link like a, a Google Hangout or a Blue Jeans conference or whatever, and it says, Do you want to launch this in the app? Mm -hmm. And it yeah. prompts to, to fire it up in a separate app, right? That's a, it's called a URL scheme. Well, when you download an application and Safari automatically extracts it, well, it automatically registers the URL stream uh, uh, scheme. And that leads to where if somebody clicks on a malicious link, that it could hook into a URL scheme and then launch malware. And what Patrick Wardle found out was that he could actually manipulate the error message, not error message, but the security prompt that's being posted up on the screen. And so he gave an example here of like um, clicking on a link and it shows, you know, do you want to allow this to open attachment.txt? Uh, and he was able to modify that alert to make it say something like this. Do you want to allow this page to open apple.com? Now, when you look at something like this, that's a lot more trustworthy than, all right, I'm going to open some random application. No, I think I'll cancel. Oh, Apple.com, I guess it's opening Apple. So it's actually the same, the same text box. It's just they just changed the message. They've managed to change. Okay. Yeah, he, he did an initial version. Oh, they have a picture of it uh, where he just changed it to emojis, right? <laughs> uh, do you want to allow this page to open smiley face kisses? Yeah. No, I do not. <laughs> so, But what he was trying to show, though, was that um, – the security, he couldn't make the prompt go away. He couldn't make it where you just automatically started running malware. That would be bad. But it was almost trivial to trick the end user. The end user is always the weakest link in security. And so that's exactly what he's showing right here. Uh, the URL scheme system is a problem. If you use Google Chrome or Mozilla Firefox, this does not affect you. They don't automatically extract files that you download. This is a Safari thing. Uh, Apple is working on a fix, but they don't have one yet. Patrick recommends turning off the uh, opening of safe files after downloading. It's a setting under preferences. If you go to preferences in general, you'll see open safe files after downloading. He says, turn that off, and that stops the problem until Apple can put out a fix. So in theory, that would stop the problem. But if I still went and opened that, that zip file and extracted it, wouldn't it do the same oh, action yeah. at that time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that they would still be able to <laughs> manipulate the, the text? Well, at that point, if you're manually opening the application, it's not the browser that's oh, rendering this then. launch. Okay. At that point, you'd be in the OS and Gatekeeper would stop you. Okay. And, and Gatekeeper does work the right way. Uh, you, know, you start getting into your Unix level permissions under the hood and all that. So you are protected there. It's when Safari launches it and it takes over you know, with, with Safari's credentials. That makes sense. Yep. Uh, all right, let's move over now. We got some threats to talk about. Uh, this first one at threatpost.com. Uh, Magneto Core card skimmer found on mass numbers of e-commerce sites. So, all right, I thought card skimmers were the actual physical things. Is that just a term we're now using for anything that's that's taking your your yes. info? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Basically, so this is it's actually Magento Core. Um, Magento is a shopping cart system. Uh, it is incredibly popular, used yeah. by thousands of websites that are out there. If you if you want to start an e-business today, Magento will get you online in seconds. They, they have some crazy model like that. Uh, and it's absolutely true. You, you sign up for their service, and they run your shopping cart. You can add stuff in. They do the whole checkout thing, and it works great. Well, just like the physical skimmers that get installed in gas stations, hackers have found a way to inject 
basically a, a virtual skimmer into a Magento shopping cart. So when you go online, you go to a website, it's all SSL'd up like crazy. You got your green lock up in the top bar. You're, you're putting in your credit card data. Everything looks safe. Meanwhile, there is some malicious JavaScript that's intercepting your credit card data and sending it off to servers in some other country, isolating that away and, and compromising your data. Um, this is actually something that started with the, uh, oh, I almost said Blockbuster. Blockbuster's out of business, <laughs> not them. Uh, well, this it was could the, be why. Uh, uh, not Blockbuster, the, the ticket, uh, Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster. Oh, uh, yeah. There was the Ticketmaster yeah. breach a, a few months ago. This is an extension of that. Okay. So they targeted Ticketmaster first because that was a, a high dollar, you know, big vendor. Now they're targeting anybody else that's running Magento. Uh, the security researchers have located a whopping 7,339 and counting individual e-commerce sites. So a huge amount of infected sites that are out there. And the big problem here is that as an end user, you can't tell anything's happening. Your transaction goes through just fine. And even on the e-commerce side, they don't see anything happening. They, the transactions are coming through. That's the thing about skimmers. They're just collecting that data and actually a man in the middle kind of thing, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And they're, if they're not modifying anything, you, you won't even know they're there. And uh, they say in the article somewhere that uh, the average compromise is one and a half weeks or something like that. Yeah, it says so, recovery time is, is a few weeks uh, with at least uh, 1,450 e-commerce sites hosting the magnetocore.net parasite during the full six months of his analysis. Yep. So yeah, that many kept it on the whole time. And uh, the alarming thing, as you said, and counting, uh, it says that, that according to his scans, uh, they're finding 50 to 60 uh, new stores being hijacked per day. So is this the kind of thing, though, that since it all does come back to, to one uh, company, if Magneto Magento. pushed out, or, uh, excuse me, uh, Magento put, pushed out a fix, uh, so that it would solve this? The sad part here is this is not Magento's fault. Uh, Magento has a secure shopping cart, right? What happened with Blockbuster is Blockbuster introduced one of those chat with us live things, oh, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you go to the website and a little box pops up and says, hey, can we help you? Or, or what are you? They're kind of annoying. Um, but but they, they pop up. Well, they do that by adding JavaScript to a page. And you're absolutely not supposed to do that on your shopping cart page, but they did. And it was that chat software that got compromised. And once that happened, because it existed on the shopping cart page, they were now able to intercept the shopping cart. And things like SSL encryption, that's all done by the time you get to that point. And, uh, you know, you get a compromise. So all of these other websites that are out there have one way or another, either through chat software or social media share buttons or, or who knows what, have added additional JavaScript that's able to be exploited onto their Magento shopping cart pages. So that's that's really not Magento's fault. It's these these companies, these Magento customers that are just using it inappropriately. And it is kind of surprising that so many people are doing that. All right. And by the way, what did I say? Magneto? That's a that's an yeah. X it's like an X Man. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which I mean, if he was running your shopping cart, that's, that's a different story. Pretty right? impressive. Yeah. <laughs> who who can hack Magneto? That's all right. Uh, let's move over now. This is um, kind of along the same lines of security here over on TechCrunch. Five Eyes governments call on tech giants to build encryption backdoors, or else. And Five Eyes uh, is, is U.S. Canada. Uh, Pretty much English-speaking countries, yeah, Australia, Australia, UK, UK New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, okay. And they, yeah, <laughs> I was about to say, do they speak English in New Zealand? Yeah, I believe yes, they, they do. do. Yeah. <laughs> it's different. It's slightly different, but you've been there. I've been there. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. So uh, for whatever reason, uh, English-speaking countries have lost their mind. Uh, I have we've reported on this with other countries, and you know, here in the U.S., it's easy for us to see things in other countries and point out and say, ah, that'll never happen here. Um, when Russia passed a similar rule years ago, uh, where they said, hey, if you're doing encryption, you got to provide the government back doors. I said, man, that'll never happen here in the U.S. Well, here we are, and the U.S. is certainly asking for numerous organizations inside the U.S. government, uh, but now the uh, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, you know, there, there are, our security agencies are all teaming up and basically reaching out to the tech giants, the Microsoft, Google, uh, Facebook, and saying, look, you've got to give us backdoors to your system so that we can you know, intercept and read uh, all these communications. And the, the scary part here is that all of this is done under the, under the warrantless uh, collection of data. So basically, they just, they just want it all, give, give us all the information. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty big deal. And it, it's a strange, the politics of it, people kind of fall on both sides of the fence. And there's certainly an argument each way. Um, there's the argument of, it's my information, I should be able to choose who I share it with, so it should be private. There's the government's argument that you don't own the internet, you're just borrowing it, and so you don't have any rights on the internet. Um, you know who's right? I don't know. I'm not an attorney. Uh, I just know that uh, you. What it really reinforces for me is that you should not be putting sensitive data on the internet without using your own encryption key. Is that it? You should not rely on encryption and security from any company unless you're the one generating and storing the private keys. That's the only time. And even then, if the algorithm that you're using has been backdoored, you could be generating your own private keys and it could still be compromised. So, you know, we just have to remember the internet's a shared network and that you cannot cannot trust any system on it. Yeah, and the or else in the headline that they alluded to, they, they say later on in the article, if companies don't voluntarily allow access, the nation's threatened to push through new legislation that would compel their help. So basically, uh, they're saying, you know, if, if Apple says, no, we're not going to allow this, which they probably will say, then then they'll try to push some laws through that uh, that, that compel them to. And, and my guess is then there will be Supreme Court battles and uh, the... Uh, well, you know, so funny thing about that, right? Uh, when the Supreme Court gets involved, that's usually when there's some debate over whether a law applies. If, mm -hmm. if they write up a law, though, that says— Well, if they write up a law, I'm, I'm assuming that, that Apple will defy it and be taken to court, and that will that appeals process will go yeah, through. Yeah, they'll have to argue that it's non-constitutional. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. we'll see. And then, then we get to see what the uh, Supreme Court in New Zealand looks like. That, that'll yeah. be exciting, because <laughs> I, I imagine it's just wacky. Uh, all right. Um, speaking of, well, this is not back doors. This is actual physical doors, I believe. Uh, this article on Forbes.com, Google's doors hacked wide open by their own employees. So we are talking about real doors now, right? Yes, without yeah, absolutely. RFID card. Okay. I just want to make sure because I don't, I don't want to look like a complete idiot here. That <laughs> we're talking about front doors. Yeah. So uh, so in Google, in one of their headquarters buildings, they have a keyed access system, just like we do here in mm -hmm. our building, where if you want to walk into the building, you got to swipe your little key card on the, the pad, uh, and then the light goes from red to green, door opens, and you walk right in. Well, Google obviously has a large security staff, and they're constantly evaluating their phones, their Chromebooks, their software, their websites, and their facility to maintain security. And what happened was one of the researchers was studying their keyed entry system. And what he noticed, that the researcher is uh, David Tomasik, I think is how you pronounce that, uh, what he noticed 
was that when he was monitoring the traffic between the keycard sensor pads and the servers that controlled it, it was encrypted data. And encrypted data should always look random. It should never look the same. You could send the exact same command over it 10 times, and you should have 10 different sets of data. Once it's encrypted, it should always look different, right? And what he found was that if he watched those packets, that a lot of times they look the same, which shouldn't happen. And what he found after doing some research was that they were using a hard-coded encryption key. And because it was hard-coded, it would encrypt and not factor in like a timestamp. And that meant that if it was sending a command, if it sent the command a second time, it would be encrypted and look exactly the same way. And that allowed him to basically peel away the encryption was there to, to know what was being, happen, uh, being sent across the network, but also it allowed him to do replay attacks. And so he was able to intercept a door open command and then replay it to unlock a door whenever he wanted. And that, you know, basically fully defeats the encryption. Now, the interesting thing here, there's actually a couple of interesting things. One, it's that a hard-coded encryption key was used. We've seen this happen on a number of Internet of Things devices and cheap home routers and cheap access points. So to see this in what is the odds are a tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollar keyed entry system, like keyed entry systems are expensive. We... How many doors do we have here that are key? Like six? At least. I yeah, think ours is, we've got a couple internal doors now as well. So. And ours is like 40 grand for just wow. six doors. Uh, Google obviously is going to have way more doors than, than, than us. So, uh, I mean, it's an expensive system that they're designed to create really reliable hardware. Those companies are fairly new to the software business and just didn't do a good job on this. Uh, the other interesting thing is that, you know, even Google, there's this massive company with an, a security team that is larger than practically any other companies out there, uh, that they have internal devices and hardware that is not completely trustworthy. And this is just an extension of the whole IoT problem that yeah. we have. Yeah, well, because this isn't something that they created. Right. This is, and it looks like it says here um, Software House uh, is, was the software, and that's owned by Johnson Controls, which is one of the big uh, players. And is, that, is that who we use here? No, we use Sonatrol. Uh, yes, Sonatrol. Yep. All right. So, uh, so it said potentially others that use this, um, uh, you know, this software or the, this system uh, could be uh, vulnerable still. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be some more uh, fixes coming out and, and rolling out if that if that is an issue across the board. Yeah, and and if you wanted to take advantage of this, it would be a little bit difficult, right? Because you would have to be on the network with these panels, right? Yeah. So if you're just some outsider standing outside the building, it'd be pretty hard to intercept that. Although you I could probably you could rip do a, the face like plate a skimmer, off. Like, yeah. a, like the same thing you do at an ATM. We are talking about skimmers. I feel like there could be something next to the, the pad. Yeah. that. And if you intercepted the, the codes, then you'd be able to replay them. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that would be a viable attack. And all of a sudden, your physical security on those doors is no longer... All right, well, let's give this a try. <laughs> let's let's, check let's it go out. get arrested. <laughs> next week, uh, Don and I will be doing this from... Mountain prison. View so, County Jail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we, I'm sure we can find someone locally. Oh, that yeah. We can do this. Yeah. And then we can go to this jail. It's yeah. way better than Mountain Views. <laughs> yeah, let's go to Mountain View. <laughs> uh, thinking about that again. Let's do that. Uh, all right. Uh, next article over here on ZDNet.com. Mega.nz. Is that is that New Zealand? Uh, it is New Zealand, All yes. right. Yep. Speaking of New Zealand. We've got a running um, theme going on this episode. Good, good transitions. Uh, Mega.nz Chrome extension caught stealing passwords and cryptocurrency Private keys. Well, that's not as important because I heard about uh, 
What is, what is the other uh, cryptocurrency that took a dive this week? The, the second biggest one. Uh, all of them. Elysium, I don't know. Bitcoin, Bitcoin Ethereum. Ethereum, thank Ethereum. you. Yep. Yeah, so that's that's following suit. But anyway, uh, Chrome extensions caught stealing. So, yeah, you, you trust the, all these extensions you put on, on Chrome, but maybe you shouldn't. All right, so uh, I mean, just a number of red flags on this one. First off, we're talking about Mega, and if you've forgotten about Mega, uh, congratulations. I'm jealous of you. I, I unfortunately remember <laughs> them. Uh, Mega was or is a giant file sharing website. You can go and upload files, share with people. It's like a Dropbox, uh, except when somebody goes to download a file, they have to watch 10,000 ads, and then finally they get to download it. Uh, it was rife with pirated content, so there were a number of lawsuits built around that. The owner, who famously changed his name to Kim.com, oh, yes. uh, was recently lost his bid to prevent being extradited to the U.S. So he's no longer in charge of Mega, but Mega does still exist. Uh, Mega switched to a new system a while ago where you couldn't just go and download a file straight from their site. You needed to install a Chrome plugin or a Firefox plugin in order to be able to download these files, which is annoying because you might want to download a file one time and now you've got this plugin hanging around you got to remember to remove. Well, unfortunately, the way that Google handles the Chrome updates or the Chrome plugins is that they do need to be digitally signed, but Google signs them for you when you update or upload them through the developer portal. So somehow the mega uh, developer account for the, the Google Chrome web store uh, got compromised. A malicious actor was able to log in as the mega staff and upload an unsigned version of their plugin, which Google promptly signed on their behalf and then distributed it out. Um, it was caught within about, uh, they say it was caught within an hour, but really when you start digging through all the information, it sounds like it was more like four hours. But within five hours, it had been removed from the web store uh, and it had been removed from everybody who was running it. The mega staff pushed out a, a replacement within four hours to get that fixed and taken care of. Uh, but it did highlight a problem, which is uh, the, the mega staff pointed this out, saying, like, look, if we were allowed to sign our own plugins, this wouldn't have happened because then, you know, when a malicious actor tried to upload a tampered with plugin, it wouldn't have allowed it in. But that's losing sight of the fact that somehow their developer account was compromised ahead of time. So if they were signing their own stuff, Whoever the attacker was likely would have been able to sign it on their behalf anyway. So we'll see where that goes. But uh, either way, it is another reminder to definitely watch out for web browser plugins. This one, the malicious actor uh, basically was monitoring for anytime you typed in a password, anytime you used a private key to unlock a cryptocurrency wallet, they were grabbing all of that and sending it to a server in the Ukraine. So that was that was a big red flag for that. So was this uh, isolated to just people in New Zealand, or like if I was using Mega, it would be it would not be oh, Mega. It was global. MZ. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah, it was, was global. Okay. Yeah, Mega. It, they've they've been all over. Um, gotcha. Yeah, and it used to be Mega.com, uh, but once they got in trouble with the U.S. law, I know the FBI sees some domains and things. So that's why Mega.nz is what you see now. Fantastic. All right. Well, if you're using that, be sure to. Uh, Check your stuff and maybe change some passwords. Now would be a good time. Uh, let's move now to Bleeping Computer at bleepingcomputer.com. Windows Task Scheduler Zero Day Exploited by Malware. So, um, but that's a scary looking screenshot there. But uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. But uh, so there's a new zero day exploit on Task Scheduler? Yes. So um, there was a, uh, I'll call them a gray hat hacker 
that had a bit of beef with Microsoft last week and was trying to submit a, a bug. And Microsoft said, yeah, we'll, we'll patch it uh, next time we do a Tuesday update or whatever. Uh, and that hacker said, well, forget that. I'm going to go ahead and release this to the public. And so he announced this exploit to the public. Well, it only took a couple of days for it to go from proof of concept to actual exploit. Uh, and so now there is malware out there in the wild that's taking advantage of that. Uh, it's taking advantage of the way that the Windows Task Scheduler creates its tasks. It gives a unauthorized application write access to the C colon slash Windows slash tasks folder. And once you start to create these automated tasks, the task scheduler runs them, runs them with system privileges, and now you can pop the system and gain full access to it. So that uh, that exploit that was announced, or I guess it was considered a vulnerability at that point, uh, has now transitioned into a full-blown exploit. Uh, it was a zero day, so there's not a patch available for it yet. And Microsoft is looking to patch that within the next couple of days. Uh, on the Bleeping Computer article, if you, and, and you know, we try and show the links here for these things, uh, but they actually show where one of the researchers released a quick fix uh, right here. Um, Karsten Nilsson had done a tweet with a quick fix for changing permissions on the tasks folder. And what you'll see is they're taking C colon slash Windows slash tasks and they're removing the authenticated user's permissions and, uh, and adding in uh, a couple of denies to prevent unauthorized software from writing to that folder. And that stops the zero day, but Microsoft is really going to have to patch this. And, uh, and so that patch is going to be coming out soon as part of the next Tuesday update, and we'll have that in place and be protected. Well, sounds like Microsoft should have listened in the first place, but also this, uh, this person going by the online name Sandbox Escaper. Maybe you should have used some restraint. Yeah, well, you know, th th there is a whole backstory. We talked about it last week. Um, you know, the guy uh, is not not really on the up and up, uh, yeah. so th there's that. Uh, but the other thing is this is actually an exploit that's a little bit difficult to take advantage of. Somebody would need to get access to your computer to be able to, to kick this thing off. Uh, I don't know that it's been remotely exploited yet. Uh, and, in fact, in the article here, uh, oh, no, they are remotely exploiting it, yeah. So, uh, you know, by pointing, uh, somehow they're targeting the Google update.exe to take advantage of that uh, and have it generate tasks or, or take advantage of the tasks that it's already generating. Uh, Google update.exe, if you have Google Chrome installed, that's the updater for it that runs periodically to check for updates. It leverages the Windows tasks scheduler. So, uh, you know, it all kind of gets tied in hand. But, yeah, sometimes these attackers, I, I, I shouldn't say attackers. In this case, you know, he was a... A uh, hacker that discovered a bug, he reported it to Microsoft, and was just unhappy with the amount of time that Microsoft was going to take to patch it. Yeah, I mean, if you're unhappy that the police aren't coming to your house for something small, you you set the house on fire, right? Yeah, yeah, and you got to go big. Get everyone out there. That's <laughs> just how you do things. Uh, all right, now let's move over to our final story of the day over on Motherboard, uh, motherboard.vice.com. Uh, this one, you know, it, we're talking about a, a potential vulnerability, but it's, it's actually kind of cool, too. Uh, so researchers used sonar signal from a smartphone speaker to steal unlock passwords. Uh, the subheadline there, researchers at Lancaster University um, have used an active acoustic side channel attack to steal smartphone passwords for the first time. That, that's pretty neat. I mean, I know it's it's bad, but it's kind of cool. Did you watch the, uh, you know, these new Batman movies with... Um... <laughs> Uh, what's his name? Who, uh, Christian Bale? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Bale ones. Um, I only saw the first one. It was so bad I didn't see any of the other ones. Because, <laughs> you know, when he's Batman, he talks 
stupid. Yeah. Uh, so, so anyhow, they had a little scene there towards the end of the movie where he had some bat spy technology where he got everybody's cell phone to emit sound and it could create an image and he could see anywhere in the city by taking advantage of everybody's cell phones. That's effectively what this is. Yeah. Is uh, what they did is they they took a, an Android phone and they had the speaker emit a sound that was above what the human ear could hear. So you, you wouldn't know it was doing it. And then they turned the microphone on so it could hear the sound coming back. And they were measuring the echo, you know, how long it took that sound to bounce back. And they could use that to basically create a sonar map of wherever this phone was. So they could create a, a map of, of like the room or the space that it was in or, or know if the phone was moving or know if it was stationary. They could do that. Well, even better, they found that if people had a passphrase on their phone or, you know, punch in a pin number or draw a pattern, when the finger was moving along the surface of the phone, it obviously interrupted the, the audio signal. And they figured out how they could calculate out what buttons you were pushing to get your code. So once they had that, and it wasn't perfect. They got it to where they could narrow it down to like just 12 possible combinations versus the, I, I forget, like 700,000 combinations yeah. you'd normally have. Uh, so they could narrow it down really, really small. And so then they could guess your PIN code and unlock your phone. So it was a pretty neat system. Obviously, in order to exploit this, they would have to have already compromised your phone in order to have it to emit the sound and collect the other data. Which, if they've already done that, they don't really need your passphrase at that point. They've already compromised your phone. But, uh, but it was neat to see. It's, a, it's an interesting attack. It's not one we have to worry about. Uh, you know, the average person, even, I don't know, even the non-average person is not going to worry about this. But it does show a potential vector for attack in the future. Wasn't this the, the uh, premise behind Kingsman, too? Where I never saw it. Oh, you never saw Kingsman. Wow. No, All right. good. Yeah, well, they were, they were using some sort of sonar... Uh, or, an, or just audio thing on the cell phone that uh, interrupted people's brain waves and made them act a certain way. Great stuff. Um, if you scroll down on the article, too, it, it, there's some interesting stuff. You, uh, to, to your earlier point, it's 400,000 possible unlock uh, patterns, but they show the 3x3 three three swipe grids, and it says that uh, prior research found that 20% of people use one of 12 common patterns. So if you're using one of those uh, patterns on your phone as your unlock uh, pin, uh, you're maybe especially vulnerable because uh, it looks like those are, are things that people might go and try uh, right off the bat if 20% of people are actually using those. So that's that's kind of interesting. You know, I, uh, I I didn't see this picture before the show. I'm kind of surprised. Some of these are only three swipes long. I thought you had to do more than that. Um, huh. Where do you see a three? There's, see well, some fours. so like the one at the top right here, they go right, right down. That's only three swipes. They're hitting one, two, three, and six, if that's a, a number pad, right? Right. But still, you, I guess, yeah, I guess that would be the same as a four-digit pin. Yeah. But they have to be connected, though, so it's not as strong as a four-digit pin. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I thought this was just showing, basically. So, yeah, I don't have an Android, but is that... I guess, yeah, you don't have a number pad. You have the dots, They're right? They're just dots, so, yeah, yeah, and you sketch along. So, I mean, you take a look at the the one that looks like a Z, right? If you think yeah. about the amount of swipes you're doing, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, because he gives that little tail on the end. Sure. So, a little more significant. Yeah. Well, anyhow, it is interesting to see the stuff that people use. People people use bad passwords no matter what the system is, uh, you yeah. know, be it a keypad on a door yeah. or a PIN number on your phone. The Z is the equivalent of password one, two, three, or... 
or something like that. So, uh, yeah, make sure you're using a, a fun, complex pattern. Or I guess now, uh, you know, you, you've already got to put a piece of tape over your camera on your phone. <laughs> now you got to cover the speaker uh, and the microphone and uh, wave your hand around randomly for any sonar. Yeah. And then just leave your phone at home. It's happening. Yeah, and do that's, that. that. That's the ultimate yeah. Don't security. turn the phone on. That's the best way to do it. But You know, uh, Peter, there was one article which I, I guess got dropped off that oh, I wanted yeah. to mention, um, I, and I— I forget the original source we have for this, but uh, the source for me was um, on, I believe it was on Tuesday morning, where somebody came to me and said, hey, Don, uh, what, what happened with that Microsoft outage today? And I said, what outage? So it turned out that Microsoft actually had an outage the other day. Uh, and when I say Microsoft, I mean Office 365 had an outage. It was a cloud hosted business, had an outage, which is pretty significant. Um, so Microsoft has been kind of slowly providing information as to what that outage was all about. Unfortunately, it's all been gated. It's all been locked behind where you have to have an active Office 365 account. And it's a little bit confusing. A lot of the news uh, venues out there are presenting the information this way, referring to EX147785, unable to Outlook or access Outlook or Skype. Uh, so this one started on September 5th and, and ran for several hours. And they're just saying how some people weren't able to access Skype or Outlook. But this actually started with another ticket. And if you look up that other ticket, what you'll find is that something really interesting happened. And this was not a short outage. This was an outage of over 24 hours uh, for some users of Office 365. Now, I didn't know about it because I wasn't affected. And actually, to my knowledge, nobody over here in IT Pro TV was affected either. Or people uh, were very unproductive at that time and just weren't checking their emails anyway. That could be. If no one noticed it and, and you had an outage, that's, that's a problem. Well, so some people did notice, <laughs> just not us here in our office, because what happened is the Office 365 deployment in the San Antonio data center uh, temporarily went offline due to some problems applying. Uh, well, there's a few theories, but the official Microsoft statement here, I'll, I'll pull it up, uh, is that they had uh, right here, preliminary root cause, extreme weather in the San Antonio area caused a data center wow. issue, which affected multiple Office 365 services. So basically, that's really bad storms in San Antonio, and something must have happened where the power generator something made the Office 365 infrastructure there in San Antonio go offline, if you happen to be one of the people hosted there out of that data center, then you were going to be affected by this. Now, when you sign up for an Office 365 account, your account is attached to the data center nearest to wherever you are at that time. So we're in Florida. Ours ended up being attached here on the East Coast, not in San Antonio. Um, it doesn't move after that, no matter what happens in your company. It kind of stays in that one place. Uh, for most services, it's not a big deal that... Microsoft replicates to different data centers. You're able to fail over, and it's no big deal. But Skype and Outlook, right, they rely on Microsoft Exchange and your directory. And while the directory is replicated to other uh, data centers, apparently your mailbox is not, or at least not in a way that's readily available. And so many users were not able to get into their mailbox, and they weren't able to leverage Skype, which is all tied to that because of the present system. So that was a big outage for a lot of people uh, you might not have noticed. It made some blips on the tech news, but it uh, it highlighted two things for me. You know, one is that cloud services are not perfect. We always need to remember that that everybody has outages, uh, and two that a lot of these updates are hidden behind authentication gateways, which I think is unfortunate. Like this this type of information, if you're a if you're a support person, 
and Adobe has some kind of outage, you might not have an Adobe account. Your end users might, but you don't. don't. So how are you supposed to get access to this information? So kind of frustrating that this is all tucked away and, uh, and hidden behind that, uh, that authentication wall. Yeah, and that's interesting because you don't think of, of um, these kinds of services as having a single point of failure. Um, basically, you think, oh, it's a, I, my email's in the cloud, so uh, if San Antonio goes down, I'm, I'm good. But uh, that's interesting to know that there are still things that, that aren't uh, you know, redundant across multiple data centers. Yep, and, and Microsoft made a statement saying that they're working on uh, taking care of this to make sure that it doesn't happen again. But the reality is, if you're asking yourself, well, what could I do to prevent this? The answer is nothing. Like the, This all comes down to how Microsoft replicates the mailboxes on the back end. And that's that's managed by them. That's part of what you pay for by doing a hosted cloud service. Uh, I have to imagine that there was some additional problem on the back end that's not a part of this report. Because I've set up Exchange servers, and I've set up redundant mailboxes, and I know that you can be redundant across multiple data centers. I, I'm certain Microsoft knows because they made the software. <laughs> I didn't make it. So... Uh, so there, there's probably a little more to it, but these uh, public articles, or not really public, right, pseudo-public articles, don't always share the, the real details there. So just something to be aware of uh, and to keep keep an eye on. So when they say they're working on it, I assume they're coming up with some sort of weather device. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Like in the G.I. Joe cartoon, right, The where they yeah. control the weather. And, sure, yeah. And yeah. yeah, that's that's obviously They've the, hired the Destro. Step. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, only the best. And Magneto, did they, did they <laughs> yeah. get him as well? All right, well, uh, that's going to do it as far as the news goes, but we do have a couple announcements to let you know about, uh, first of which we have some webinars coming up on our IT Pro TV, IT Pro in the Know series. The next one, I believe, is next Thursday. Uh, if we can scroll down just a little bit there, September 13th, uh, it is... Um, DAS, uh, Rumors and Realities, that's Desktop as a Service, uh, for those that don't know. And if you don't know, then you should probably attend the webinar uh, hosted by Ronnie Wong. And then we've got the next one uh, with our own Don Pazette here uh, and Justin talking about the top five DevOps blunders, uh, what IT pros need to know there. And that's coming up the following Thursday, September 20th, 2018. If you want to register for either of those or check out any of the old uh, webinars. We archive them all on this page at itpro.tv slash webinars. Uh, so you can see the next one's coming up. And then uh, down below, we've got all the past webinars that you can peruse as well and, uh, and, and check out at your leisure. So if you miss any, um, there you go. We can learn all about the things like uh, hybrid cloud, DDoS attacks, and CompTIA Plus exams, and all that fun stuff. And if you want to learn more about IT Pro TV, well, please check us out at go.itpro.tv slash technado. Uh, there you will get a special 30% off code, uh, and you can also request uh, team pricing and a demo uh, if you want to get your whole team involved. It's a great way to check out IT Pro TV and see what we're all about. So, Don, I guess that's going to do it for us today. Uh, any final thoughts? Any closing things to add? You know, it's a, it's a crazy IT world out there, a lot of fun stuff. If you guys hear anything you want to learn more about or, or know anybody that would be good for an interview on the podcast, please you know shoot out to us yeah. in uh, social media, let us know, and we, we'd love to line up more content for the podcast. Definitely, and thank you, New Zealand, uh, for all the great stories today, and I can't wait to see uh, who makes the news next week. So we'll have to wait till then, <laughs> and we'll see you next week on the Tech Network.